Wow, great worship already this morning. Thank you, orchestra and worship team. We appreciate that big, big time. Let's stop for a moment and talk to our Lord, and then we come to the last in the series, Missions Month. Father, so many hearts are grieving right now, and we have learned the value of weeping with those who weep as well as rejoicing with those who rejoice. We have much to be grateful and thankful for and yet much to be broken about. Thank you that our Lord set the tone, set the pace, modeled for us how to do exactly that, to come alongside those who need a hug. And often say nothing or do nothing but just say, I'm here, I care. Help our church family to do that effectively in the lives of those we just mentioned. And Father, in the lives of others that we're not aware of, but you know. It may be just setting a few people away from us right now in the same row or ahead or behind They just need a hug from us, and I pray that you'll help us to be sensitive and respond to every need here. Now, Father, our missionaries, both past, present, and future, are in need of us responding well to this message this morning and this missions month, and I pray that this won't be just another study, another message, another service another worship time, but it will be an impactful time as we open your book and say to you, here am I, send me. Say to you, give me the grace to lift up, lift up my eyes and look on the fields that are wide into harvest. And as we individually say to you, here's what you've entrusted me with. I give it back to you today and invest it for eternity. Would you be pleased as we walk through this study today and respond well to it? In Jesus' name, amen. Here's the subject that every Baptist pastor loves to preach on. Missions and, say it. Oh, say it like you're excited about it. Missions and? Money. Money. Who does it belong to? God. Can I tell you how important The subject of money is to missions. It was important to Christ. Some have suggested, I'm not sure I believe this statistic, but some have suggested that two out of every three discussions that Christ had somehow alluded to money. And while I'm not sure I believe that totally, this much I do know, our Lord made it pretty clear, my beloved, that um, money and God The worship of each do not go together. He said in that greatest of all sermons, Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, you cannot serve two masters. You love the one and hate the other or hate the one and love the other. You cannot serve He summarized it all with this statement. God and, King James word, mammon. What's mammon? 
Money, you can't serve both. Do you know what the bottom line principle of that is? It is that each of those, God and money, are totalitarian in nature. What do I mean by that? They demand increasingly more of you. Think about it. I've talked to you about the pain of selling my last boat. I invested deeply in that boat, and I enjoyed it deeply. I didn't start with a nice boat. When our sons were young, had a newspaper route, they wanted to buy a boat to go fishing, I added a little money to theirs, and we bought this wonderful, we thought it was a cabin cruiser. It was a 14-foot rowboat with a little motor on it. And we went out fishing and enjoyed it, and the five of us got in a 14-foot rowboat. One day we were on a lake, and two huge boats crossed in front of us, and those who have been on the lake know what happened when waves cross with waves. It took the steering wheel of that little 14-foot boat right out of my hands and spun us around, and I said, that's enough. 14 foot is dangerous. I need a 16 foot. So we got a 16 foot boat. But one day I was driving by an 18 foot boat. And I said, we got to sell the 16 and get the 18. And we got it. And then I drove by this marvelous, beautiful bass boat. And I invested, and I bought it. Now, I want you to notice something. Each time I bought a boat, it increased in value and in size. And there came a day when I was ready to say, I need a bigger bass boat. I deserve it. I owe it to myself. Hello. Is there a problem with that? Yeah. Everything we take our money and invest in in this life somehow causes us to be satisfied and want a little more until mammon has our soul, has our all, has our focus. I think the older we get, the more we learn the futility of that, and yet I don't think, my beloved, we ever escape that in this present life, which is why the Lord said you cannot serve mammon and God because both of them demand your all. And while we, when we come to the Lord, don't give him our all, he expects more this year than last, more next year than this year, more ten years from now in that decade than in this decade. Does he not? It's called progressive sanctification. And so the Lord is making it unmistakably clear to us. You must be careful with your view, your heart's view, your mindset toward, your attitude toward, your love for. Mammon, it'll pull you away from God every time. Do you think that's a needed message in this culture? The Apostle Paul did the same thing. It is not that he walked with Christ and was taught by him, though 
there is indication that in a spiritual way he was taught by the Lord himself after the Lord's resurrection. I don't know that I comprehend how all that happened. But much of what Paul learned, he learned from the men who directly walked with Christ. And when the apostle taught about money, he did the same thing that Christ did. He did not retreat from it. He was very forthright with the subject of money. And no less so in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6, when he pens these words, He who sows, say it. No, say it together. Will also reap. But he who sows will also reap. The Apostle Paul knew the same thing that the Lord Jesus did. We have a tendency to hold for ourselves. And we do not have a tendency to give. And so Paul says, don't give just a little. You rather need to be responding because of the grace of God. We'll talk about that in a little bit. You need to be responding with much giving. So the Apostle Paul's heart did not withdraw, but he also communicated this great need of paying attention to what we do with the funds that God has entrusted into our care. Now I want to set the context for you. I'm sort of going to give you a big picture, then focus in on the text we just read, and then back up to another text if you follow that. Here's the first. Paul uses... Many metaphors in this second letter to the church at Corinth. Some have counted 22. I think they may be accurate. One of the metaphors he used, just to give you an example, is in chapter 2, verse number 14. He uses the word fragrance. You odea. Fragrance. That is a term that the people to whom Paul wrote would have clearly understood. It was in reference to putting some sweet fragrance perfume form into the sacrifice that's being burnt so that when the smoke rises, it's not a smoke that is odorous in the sense I have to back away from this, but it is a sweet-smelling fragrance that the pagans would put on their sacrifices. And as it ascended, they believed the sweet-smelling fragrance appeased their gods, was acceptable to them. So to them, it was a good thing. We have to offer this sweet fragrance. And the Apostle Paul was suggesting that it is a sweet thing that they offer themselves up to the Lord. And it's also a sweet thing, the knowledge that enabled them to make the offering. And that knowledge is a description of the gospel itself being a fragrant thing. And so I wish I had a whole bunch of time to park there. I just want to tell you, you don't ever want to back off on this fishing for men thing and these light bulb stories, my beloved, because they themselves are a part of that sweet-smelling smoke that is offered up to God. And ultimately, you will have laid treasures up in heaven 
by bringing the far from God to him. And they will be there with you. They're the only thing you have to take to heaven with you is those whom you have won to Christ. Pretty, pretty great. Sweet-smelling fragrance. I wish I had time to park there. He talked about earthly houses, and not one of the translations that I read correctly translates the word earthly houses. When these pass away, then we have an eternal house. The word house is really tent. It refers to a tabernacle or tent, not to a house on the foundation. And it carries the idea as a believer, as Paul's writing to them, that we are to plant our stakes in the ground on this earth as long as he gives us life, but not build foundations so solid that we cannot be moved by him from this life with an eternal building in view, not just our earthly buildings. There's such a great challenge in that. He uses another one. We are ambassadors. It's a word that means we are established beside. Now, check your neighbor and make sure they're still awake after all this technical stuff, right? You okay? Being established beside means God, by his grace, divine side, and I, being a bondservant by my choice, human side, place myself at the side of the Lord Jesus, just as those who walked beside him, 12 disciples in that first century. And I walk as he walks. I'm established as he was established. I am what he was. That is what the word ambassador means. And it's such a wonderful metaphor and picture. Well, you get the idea? I hope I just whet your appetite a little bit. I'll give you an assignment. Go home and study the book of 2 Corinthians in a new way. I'm not going to be here long enough to do this, but if I, if I were king for a day, I would create the next series around the metaphors that are in the book of 2 Corinthians. They are so encouraging to the body of Christ and they let you know what he wants you to be involved in. And you do care about that, right? What he wants you involved in. Yeah, me too. All right, he used many metaphors, but on this idea of giving, the Apostle Paul pointed out in our text this morning a simple metaphor about giving. And here's the metaphor. Sowing and reaping. Say it with me. Sowing and reaping. Say it again. Sowing and reaping. Yeah. So. Spera. So. Hebrew, uh, the, the Greek word for it. Spera. What's it mean? It means to extend the arm. What's that got to do with sowing? Oh, it has everything to do with it. When I was 12 years old, my dad put me on an F-20 farm-all tractor. Anybody know what that is? Yeah, all three of you. That's one of those old tractors that you crank to start. It's one of those old tractors when you come to the end of the field, you turn right, you have to turn the wheel with one hand and pull the brake if you're turning right, pull the brake on the right side. 
to help that right wheel stop turning and the left wheel turn more so that you turn right. Now this is important, it's highly important stuff, so don't lose this. Um, I came to the end of the field where it was a fence. At 12 years old, I wasn't used to the tractor and my head goes, which brake do I pull to turn right? I pulled the wrong one. And I had the wheel turn and the wheels like this, you know, totally like this, going toward the fence at the end of the road. I pulled the left brake, and what do you naturally do when you want to stop the thing? You just pull it all the harder. And I pulled it all the harder, and the tractor just kept going straight right through the fence. <laughs> then I couldn't remember how to stop it, you know, like push the clutch. So I let go of the brake, and the tractor came around, and I just decided, well, i got to get on the other side of the fence. So I went through the fence about 20 feet the other side of where I'd first come through it. <laughs> I debated whether or not to say anything to my father when he got home. He was very patient with me. I just learned how to do it. I said, what do we do now, Dad? He said, well, you got the field ready to plant. And I said, okay, where's the planter? He said, we don't have one. I said, where's the drill to drill the seed into the ground? We do not have one. Well, how are we going to plant? We are not, Larry. You are. <laughs> and at 12 years of age, he handed me a thing called a horn. It was kind of a funnel about this long, this big around on one end and very tiny on the other with a couple of slots in it that the seed would fall through. On the other end of the horn was this bag with a strap that go over your shoulder and so you carried this bag and horn and you started at one end of the field as dad trained me. You picked something out on the other side of the field, the other end that you walked toward. And all the while, you extend your arm and never stop extending it. You pull it back and extend it, pull it back and extend it. And that horn with that seed is spreading the seed all over that field that I had just finished disking and ran through the fence. That's the very word that he's using here. You sow. You sow. I'm calling you to sow. What is it that you're wanting us to sow? And of course, if you see it in its context, Paul's talking about that which God has entrusted into our care, namely our money. And he says, I want you to sow it. Now you can determine how much you sow without a horn by the level at which, the angle at which you held the horn. Hold it down and more is released. Hold it up and less is released. And the Apostle Paul's making it clear, you want to sow more. Hold the horn down. Sow more and more and more. The word is called bountifully sow. But then there's the word reaping. It's a word that means to cut with a sickle. 
And it's the way they harvested. They didn't have combines, gas and diesel-powered combines in that day. They just used a sickle. And with manpower, they walked out and cut the wheat or whatever was planted. Watch this carefully. You know the bottom line of all that? Whether you sow sparingly or you sow bountifully, whether you give a little or you give a lot, the expectation is, listen carefully, that you will receive more seed than you sow. That's the expectation. Oh no, here goes Larry, this health and wealth kind of gospel. Oh, we're not talking about receiving more in this life, though God by his grace lets us have a glimpse here and there of some eternal value that is accomplished by what we give today. But giving today, sowing today, has in mind a reaping, a harvest that goes way beyond our present life. It looks long-term toward the eternal, that which is to come. I'm trying to say, would that I had tongues of angels, a tongue of angels, so that I could grip you and help you understand what only God can do. He can take the little or much that you sow today and transmute it into an eternal value that will be waiting for you in eternity where, hmm, think I've heard this before, moth and rust doth not corrupt or thieves break through and steal. It will never be consumed. It's there as a bountiful harvest. Greater seed than the little that you sow. Does that make sense? Only God can do that. I wish I had more time. That sure beats Chase Bank. It sure beats First State Bank, or there's some weird names. Third, Fifth Bank. 25th, Third Bank. I don't know. Weird stuff out there, but they can't offer you what God does. It's one reason why in 44 years of ministry, even starting out as a young man, I never once retreated from talking to God's people about money. Do you know why? Because I know if I could encourage you and motivate you in a spiritual way to get $10 more per month this year than you gave last year, or to invest more bountifully than you ever have before, I know that that's coming back to you where and when it really counts. It is for your good. It is laying up treasures in heaven. So if you want to sow sparingly, the principle is you're going to get more. At least so sparingly. But that's not the challenge of the text. The Apostle Paul said, for heaven's sakes, since we're talking about eternal value so bountifully, so that there is more in eternity to lay at the feet of the Lord Jesus, listen, who gave everything for you. So give more and more for him.
in a real sense, in a motivating way. He's simply saying it's good for you. You're laying up treasure for yourself when you get to heaven. Amen? Well, it's not quite time to go home. Paul uses, I'm backing up now, I gave you a big picture of all the uh, number of the metaphors, small picture of a simple metaphor, sowing, reaping, and I want to back up now to chapter 8, verse 1, where the Apostle Paul uses the faithful giving of others, the churches of Macedonia. And will you listen to this word? It's powerful. Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. Do you hear what that verse says in the context of giving? Giving is a grace from God. You do know that mercy is what God gives to forgive you of what you've done and keep you from what you deserve, right? Grace is what God gives you in spite of the fact that you and I don't deserve it. And what God gives you is this grace that enables you to give. That is a grace. You don't deserve to be able to give and lay up treasures in the heaven, but the grace of God gives it to you. Another way of saying it is that's a supernatural gift from above. It is not a natural gift that any person has. It doesn't come naturally. You know what comes naturally? Getting and keeping and hoarding for myself. What comes supernaturally? Letting go of the clenched fist and giving. It's a grace, God says, that to the church at Corinth, that God gave to the churches of Macedonia. I think I told you before that we used several, uh, we used to several years ago, um, several years in a row, bring all of our grandchildren into our house for one week. We kicked the parents out because no grandparent can handle the kids with the parents around. So we had them for a week, and we'd come to church, usually Bible school, and Elaine would give all the grandkids an offering to put in the offering at vacation Bible school. It's usually the week we kept them. It's fun to watch her sitting beside the kids when the offering plate comes around. At that point, we had seven grandkids. Rather than the ten we have now, we had seven grandkids. And we watched them hold that offering in their hands. Elaine nearly had to get up out of her seat and walk up and pry those fingers open to put to get the kids to give what we gave them to give, not to keep for themselves. Now, why are they that way? Well, they're, they're grandmother's grandkids. <laughs> we are all that way from Adam and Eve. What do you mean I can't have that? That's for, say it, me. It's mine. There's so many ways that fleshes itself out. I wish I had more time. Just want to say to you, let God work this grace gift in you. 
It is to your advantage, chapter 9, verse 6. It is to your advantage to let God work his grace, chapter 8, verse 1, and let go and give. It's eternal in its value to you. There's so much more that's here. He goes on to say, the grace of God enabled them in a great trial of affliction. Just have enough time to tell you, this church really knew what it was to suffer and be persecuted. They were beaten. They were thrown in prison. And prison wasn't for a, a place to be used to penalize those who have committed a crime. It was a place to use to try to torture people into changing and recanting and turning from their faith. And they were suffering exactly like that, imprisonment and torture. And in their great affliction, they opened up their hand. They gave. And it goes on to say, and in the abundance of their joy. Wait a minute. When a person goes through tribulation, trouble, trial, affliction, whatever you want to call it, deep waters. You know something about the grace that has been given to them as you just watch and determine. Do they respond to it with a peace and a joy? Or do they respond to it with abandonment, giving up for me? These believers responded to their great affliction with great joy and they evidenced it by opening their hand and giving. And then he goes on to say, and in their deep poverty. What? Yeah. Their deep poverty. Their bank accounts were frozen. Their assets were seized by the government of the day. They had so little to give. But they took what they had to give in their affliction, with joy, in their poverty. And they opened their hand. And they shared the riches they had with Here's a word we Baptists don't like, conservative Baptists don't like, with liberality. They were liberal. Hello, only my wife laughed at that. I thought the rest of you had wake up. Church, they gave bountifully. They did what Paul told the church to do in chapter 9, verse 6. Give, 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 open up, give bountifully. Respond to the grace of God in your life and give. Hello? Good challenge? Your turn. So this is no time to retreat from giving, but a time to increase our giving. You've been through some tribulations, some pretty tough stuff compared to what other churches have gone through. You will go through other seasons of conflict and trouble and issues. And it seems there's less, not more to give. Dare you, Larry, 
Do you have the boldness to say, look at what God says and give? Yeah. Out of the abundance of joy in their hearts, they opened up all the more, and though they had less, they gave more. In that, I see the Old Testament Eliezer story when in the battle and others had abandoned the ship, he filled in the gap for those soldiers who were standing in the battle that had retreated, that weren't there anymore by his side. He just filled in the gap and assumed their responsibilities and did it for more and more and more until he was the only one left and God gave the victory through him. When there was no one else left. It may feel like I, even I only remain in the deep, deep troubles. It's no time to stop. It's time to step into the gap that others have left and fill their gap as well as your own. Amen? Oh, amen? Amen. Fill the gap. Why? Because it's for your eternal good. And since missions is the emphasis, the Apostle Paul is now doing a mission spin. Typically, money was given to missionaries and mission churches. He's now talking to a mission church and saying, give back out of your poverty. Give back to the mission church that sent me out, those first believers in Jerusalem, get back. So all up and down the chain of missions, churches repeatedly by Paul and Christ are called to give. Follow the greatest example, the Lord Jesus, who though he was rich, for your sake, he became sad. Sad, church. For all oh, my beloved, for your sake, he became poor. He gave up heaven and took your sin on the cross. Became poor. Why? So that he could take a treasure from heaven, from earth to heaven, and present it to his Father, who for the joy that was set before him, the joy of offering the sweet-smelling fragrance of the thing called the church, that's you and me, offering it to the Father above. To lay up treasures there, he gave up treasures Your brief breath called life. I'm calling you. I'm begging you. I pray the Spirit of God will grip your heart to say in this last day of the missions month, I sowed sparingly. It's time to sow bountifully and lay up treasures in heaven because everything I hang on to here is going to be either stolen or it's going to rust away it's going to burn up in the flame at the end. What I invest for there will be waiting for me. So it's time to sow. If you haven't done it, fill out that card. Leave it on your seat and we'll pick it up.
You've done it marvelously. Reconsider after hearing what the Lord is asking you to do to so bountifully rather than sparingly. Fill another one out and add it to the one you filled out, anticipating a great harvest that lasts forever. And the invitation's simple. Would you stand with me, please? I invite you to join your leaders as they, the deacons, come to front and pray for your next pastor to be the kind of a servant who will not shirk away from this blessed privilege of encouraging people to give, to lay up treasures in heaven. Would you make some commitment to him today with that which he has entrusted into your care? My friend, if you're here and have no idea what on earth we've been talking about and why on earth you would be encouraged to give like that bountifully, above and beyond, I invite you to come and let one of these deacons who are praying or others who will meet you here in front, let them know. I'd like to know how to invest in the eternal. We'd love to introduce you to the one who invested in you so that he can take you to be with the Father forever. Amen? We invite you to come if those are needs in your heart. Come make some commitments, prayer support for your next pastor. Make commitments to the Lord yourself.